So if you've been with us through our journey through the Gospel of John, you probably know where we're at this morning. Looking to our Lord Jesus just over 2,000 years ago, Jesus was murdered on a bloody Roman cross. And upon that cross, there on Calvary, he died. But three days later, he rose from the dead. That's great hope, great victory. However, I want to take you back a couple thousand of years. Looking to Christ, King Jesus. The one whom you put your hope and trust in. And yet you watch as he dies upon a cross. What happens to your hope? What happens to your joy? Because even for the disciples, those who had heard him teach over and over again that he must suffer and be put to death, but three days later would rise from the dead, they didn't understand that. You know, we have the advantage of reading the Scriptures, and we say, look, there's God's Word. I know it, and I believe it. But for them, had they ever seen that happen before? They're in a completely different context than us. But the resurrection is foundational for the hope that we have in Jesus. It is the one truth that sets Christianity apart from every other system of beliefs in the world. Do you know all other religious leaders have died? Think of, think of a religious leader. Buddha. Guess what happened? Nice sound effect. He's dead. He died. Mohammed? Died. Gandhi? Dead. Confucius? Dead. Every founder of every other religious system has died, or world philosophy has died. Only one was risen from the dead. Only one also said that he would rise from the dead. Who would proclaim such a thing? You know, without the resurrection, Christianity would just be another religious system. And it would end up condemning souls to an eternity of hell. If it wasn't for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, if Jesus was not alive today, then everything he did was in vain. Everything. His death would have been a waste of a life. All his teachings would simply be ramblings of a madman. If Jesus Christ is not alive, then you have no hope of salvation. There's no hope for you. There's no hope for me. And you know what that means. If Jesus is not alive, then we're all headed for destruction, eternal damnation. You know, during Jesus' earthly ministry, the scribes and Pharisees had witnessed his miracles, and yet they still come up to him and want a sign. What sign do you give us, they asked. He said, teacher, we want a sign from you. What do you think Jesus said? He could have said, look at all that I've done. Look at all that I'm doing. But Jesus said an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will be the Son of Man be three days and three nights 
in the heart of the earth. What was Jesus telling the scribes and the Pharisees? He was telling them exactly what would happen to him. That he would be buried. But he would rise again. At the beginning of the Gospel of John, we studied this many, many Sundays ago in John chapter 2. In verse 18, we read that the Jews said to Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Again, a sign. Jesus answered them. Listen to what he said. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. So, if you're here this morning, a believer in Jesus Christ, put a big smile on your face, because praise God, our Redeemer lives. Praise God, He lives. He is our resurrected Redeemer. Jesus is alive. He's conquered sin and death, and he's guaranteed a wonderful hope for all of God's people. The title of the sermon I want to share with you this morning is Resurrected Redeemer. Resurrected Redeemer. We're in John chapter 20 this morning. If you want to open up your Bibles, John chapter 20. Jesus has gone to trial. He's been falsely accused. He's been condemned to death. He's been crucified on a cross where he died. He's been removed from that cross and buried in a tomb. And here's where we pick up in John chapter 20. We read, starting in verse 1, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple. And they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead then the disciples went back to their homes. May God bless this reading of his word. So what do we have? Something that may be very familiar to many of us. We have, it's the Lord's day. Mary goes down to the tomb, most likely with spices, as we read from the other gospels, to help anoint the body of Jesus that's been placed in this tomb. But when she gets there, much to her surprise, what does she find? An empty tomb. Now, if you do your homework and go home and read throughout the Gospels, there's many details of this event throughout the various Gospels. Go back and read Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account. Now, remember, we have an eyewitness account. 
And as an eyewitness, John is going to pull out details that stood out to him. So there are some who will look at the details and say, wait a minute. Luke says that Mary was with these other ladies. John only writes, it was Mary. No, he's focused on Mary. Look with me in your Bibles again. When she goes to Peter and John, and she says in verse, let's see, it's 2. She says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. These accounts don't contradict one another. It's just John, what he's writing about, what he's pulling out of this is this focus that Mary has gone. But she's in accompaniment of these other ladies as well. So don't listen to, you know, turn on ABC and they're telling you, oh, look, the controversies and the contradictions. No, it's an eyewitness account. This is what that eyewitness is pulling out. It would be no different if you and I went to some event somewhere and I said, write your account of what you saw. Certain things might have stood out to you at that event, and certain different things might stand out to me. It doesn't mean they both didn't happen. It just means that's what really stood out to me. So that's what's going on in this account. So we see Mary's down there. She gets to the tomb. The stone is rolled back, and she freaks out. Why? Jesus is not there. She's come to anoint his body with spices, and he is not there. Now, how many times has Jesus told the disciples that he was only going to be there a certain amount of time? That on the third day he would rise again. And again, as I started off this morning, for us, it's like, well, the scripture says it. It's easy to believe. That's never happened before. So maybe they thought this is just one of Jesus' deep teachings that we don't fully understand, but it couldn't be that he's actually coming back from the grave. Who does that? Then he, John writes about when, when Mary comes and gets Peter and the other disciple. Now, we've spoken about this before, that other disciple. John, most likely writing of himself. And he even says, the one whom Jesus loved. And I love him not mentioning himself because even his, his tenacity to get to that tomb first. Maybe he was younger. Maybe he was more eager. We don't know. But he beat Peter there. And as he books it down to the tomb to see what has happened, he stops at the entryway and peeks in. And in my mind's eye, I see Peter just barreling down the hill coming after him and not slowing down, just going straight in. And Peter gets in and sees what's there. There's no Jesus. There are cloths laying there. And even beyond that, there's this head cloth that anointed the head, and it's folded up and placed to the side. Keep that in mind as we go through this. So Mary Magdalene's first response when she gets there, she says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. She's frantic. No thought of Jesus has risen from the dead. It's they took him. The question that we must ask is, who is they? Who is she thinking took them? And now it doesn't tell us here, but most likely we would have to guess she's thinking the Romans had moved him. But we know that's not the case. At the request of the Jews, do you remember who was outside of that tomb? Roman soldiers. Guards. So that the disciples, they said, wouldn't come and steal the body and play off this whole thing that he rose from the dead. Here is the crazy thing, church. The Jews heard what he said. They heard him say he would rise. 
and they wanted to protect any type of thing getting out. They sent soldiers down to secure the tomb. So the question then is, so what happened to Christ? Now, you all know what happened to Christ, but the Jews concocted a plan, and they told the guards to tell others that his disciples had stolen the body. Back in the Gospel of Matthew, I'll just read to you, unless you want to turn there, it's Matthew 28. I'm going to read to you a few verses from verse 11. It says, While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place, meaning Jesus is not there. That they assembled with the elders to take counsel. They gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. They're bribing them. And they said, Tell the people. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This is what Jews will believe. Jesus' body was stolen by his disciples. This is the fabrication they came up with. This is the bribe the Jews gave to the soldiers. Now, They said, in case this comes into the governor's ears, don't worry, we'll satisfy him. Do you know what was on the line for them to lose Jesus? Their life. That's why they're troubled. And yet they're offered money saying, just spread this lie. Even that lie is troubling. How did this happen? I mean, think about it. The disciples had to have, like, Mission Impossible, you know, like, what's going on? And this plan is to sneak in through all the guards, quietly roll back the stone, and get the body of Jesus. And yet, two of the leaders of the disciples had no clue. Peter and John had no clue, obviously. They're running down there to see what happened. This whole idea is absurd. But it gets better. They're going to sneak through the Roman guard to get inside. And as they get inside, according to the story, they're going to unwrap the body of Jesus and carefully take off the headcloth and wrap it up. The word is rolled. In my mind, I think like an ace bandage. You know, you roll them up. They're going to take that time as they're trying to sneak in and get out. And if a body is wrapped all together, guess what? It's a lot easier to carry. You unwrap a body, now you have all kinds of limbs dangling everywhere to carry that body out. But here's what they've concocted. This is the plan. They went and they stole this body. They left the linens there. It's an absolute ridiculous accusation, a complete fabrication. But do you know that's not the only thing that's ever been put forward about what happened to the body of Jesus? As a matter of fact, if you watch TV at all, there's always an episode near Easter or near Christmas when everybody's talking about Christ. Let's talk about Christ. And they'll spin some kind of story to cause doubt in the minds of people. And originating originating back in the 18th century, the swoon theory began to make headway. What does that mean? It argues that Jesus wasn't really dead on the cross. He was like in a semi-coma state. You know, from all the, the loss of blood and everything else, that he was still alive when they took him down. And that's why he was able just to get up and walk out of that tomb. Now sit on that one for a second and think about it. Think about what that would mean. They said, you know, once that coolness of that tomb hit him, it just revived into him. He came out of that coma state. He unwrapped himself, rolled away that tomb, and snuck through 
the guard and got free. Now, they don't tell you all that part of it because it sounds completely absurd, but it's worse than what the Jews concocted. Think about the, the trained executioners at that crucifixion. These are Roman guards. They're trained in killing people. Do you think they know when someone is dead? Absolutely. Their job is on the line. And even when they come up to Jesus to break his legs, they go, this guy is dead. But what do they do to verify it? Take that spear, jabs it in his side, and what comes out? Water and blood. Verifying this guy is dead. But even so, the swoon theory. Imagine he, Jesus wakes up in this tomb. Do you remember the flogging? He is beaten within an inch of his life. He's lost blood. He's been in this tomb losing blood. He's without food, water, any medical treatment. And yet somehow he wakes up and is able to just walk out. He somehow has the strength to roll away the stone. And somehow on pierced feet to tiptoe through the Roman guard and get out. Really? Because that's what they're saying is he was just a man, but he's fooled everybody. This is absolutely absurd. I mean, come on. But yet, you'll see it still today on TV shows where they're explaining this is what happened to Jesus. It's written in books. This is what happened to Jesus. It's the swoon theory. But not at all. Jesus died on that cross. Jesus went to that tomb. And Jesus rose again three days later just like he said he would. You know, there's another argument. They say, you know what happened? That morning when the ladies went to the tomb... They went to the wrong tomb. I'm dead serious. The argument is they went to the wrong tomb. And when Mary went to get Peter and John, she led them back to that wrong tomb. And that's why Jesus wasn't there. Now again, it sounds absolutely ridiculous to us. But there are people who are believing this. People who you will go talk to and say, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And they'll pick one of these things and they'll tell you, this is what happened. And the theories go on and on about what happened to Jesus. Well, guess what? Mary went to the right tomb. Peter and John came running to the right tomb. They know where he was buried. And it wasn't just an empty tomb that they came to, but there were linen cloths sitting in there. There was the face cloth that was all folded up and in place. The place was tidied up. Whoever was there was not in a hurry. They tidied up the place. It is not a crime scene. It's not a crime scene. It was a victorious scene. It was a victorious scene. Jesus was alive. So let's pause and think of the claims of Christ. Think of what he spoke. He claimed to be the Savior of the world. He claimed to be God in human flesh, the only begotten of the Father. He claimed that he came to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus claimed of himself that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. He claimed that he was the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. But he also claimed that he would die, that he would suffer, but in three days he would rise again. 
can make such a claim? Well, I would say anybody can just say words. You can say words. You can say whatever you want. I can say whatever I want. Words are just words. Anyone can claim to be God. Interestingly enough, there is a musician who once claimed to be God. He wanted people to worship him. And yet it appears that our gracious and good God has drawn this man to salvation, that now he knows that Jesus is king and that he is not. Anybody can claim anything, but what they do matters. How they support what they've said matters. Anybody can say, I'm the way unto salvation. Anybody can say, I have the power over death. Anybody can say, I'll rise in three days, but guess what you'll be doing when they die? Let's see. Day one, day two, day three, and if they're still buried and dead, guess what? That person was a liar. We discredit everything they said because they were a liar. Peter and John rushing towards this tomb, they find these linen cloths. They find the body gone, and the scriptures become illuminated, it says to John. He remembers what the scripture said. God would not leave his anointed one, that he would not see corruption. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me again in John chapter 20. It says, The other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and he believed, for as of yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Church, Christianity hangs on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then what we believe, we believe in vain. It is a complete lie. So it's so important for us to understand and to believe and to see the true claims of the resurrection. Jesus claimed that he would rise in three days after he was crucified. It was a crazy claim for a normal man to make. It was a claim that no one in their right mind would have made. And it's a claim that no one really could fulfill. You might say, I really love my pastor. My pastor's a godly man. But if your pastor tells you he's going to die and rise in three days, your pastor's insane. But Jesus made that claim. He said he would. And everything that he did, everything that he said would have been disqualified had he not risen from the dead. He'd be just a liar, a madman. And there would actually be no point of us being here and preaching about Christ. Why would we sit and listen about Christ if he had not done what he said he would do? There would be no benefit about preaching about Christ. Faith in Christ would be of no value to us. There would be no hope in this liar, this lunatic, this madman. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14 says this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Well, those would be very uncomforting words if Christ had not risen from the dead that this would all be foolishness, that this would all be wishful thinking. But instead, we know the truth. We also know that every single one of us 
have sinned. And every single one of us need a Savior. We've all rebelled against a holy God. We've sinned in thought, in word, in deed. And the Bible's clear that the wages of sin is death. Jesus, the resurrected Redeemer, is the one who laid down his life for the sheep. He presented himself as the perfect sacrifice. The one who would live a perfect life, one that we could not live, and one who died in our place as a perfect substitute. This Jesus would take upon himself the sins of the world. This Jesus, satisfying the wrath of God on our behalf. Church, all of these things that I'm saying to you, you've heard before. But if Jesus did not rise from the dead, they're null and void. There's no truth in them anymore. It's taken the power out of it because Jesus had to have victory over sin and death. And by rising from the grave, he did just that. That our sins can be forgiven because they've been imputed to Christ, our resurrected Redeemer. But if he had not been raised from the dead, if the tomb was not empty, then he's a liar. He has no power over sin and death and we would still be in our sin. Christ had not been raised from the dead. The ramifications are endless. The resurrection is central to our faith. We must confess that Christ died for us and that he was raised from the dead. We must believe that, hold to that, because without the resurrection, there is no hope. Our faith would be absolute foolishness. We would still be in sin. There'd be no way of being forgiven. We would stand on judgment day before a holy God without Christ being that one who would intercede for us. But Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. In that same passage of 1 Corinthians, Paul continues to write in chapter 15, verse 17, he says, if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sin. He's painting a whole picture of why the resurrection is central to our faith. That it matters. That we would be of the, all the people of the world, we'd be the most foolish of people to believe in a man who said he would rise and did it. Why would you trust in him? Why would you believe in him? Why would Christians obey the commands of Christ to flee selfish ambition, to flee these selfish pursuits, and to follow Jesus? What a fool we would be if Jesus wasn't alive. Absolute fool. Our hope is in a resurrected Redeemer. Think about it. Christians submit themselves to Christ to follow him as Lord. But if Christ was not risen, we're submitting ourselves to a lie. Folklore. A myth. A fable. And you know there are plenty of people that you might speak to who say just that. Oh, Christianity, Jesus, that's a myth. That, that's, that's a fable. It's an old story. It's a Western religion. They'll give you all these different things. But Jesus is alive. Jesus is Without the resurrection, there would be no hope of heaven for us. 
There wouldn't be no reward of the life to come. Jesus wouldn't be Lord at all. He'd just be a liar. Again, Paul says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people the most to be pitied. Church, that would be really, really bad news. But you know the truth. You know the victory that we have because of the one who was victorious over sin and death. And there is no fear for us because the tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. Christ did exactly what he said he would do. Again, Paul writing says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The fact is this, that tomb that Mary went down with the ladies and found to be empty. You know why? Because Jesus is alive. We have a present hope. We have a sure foundation. We don't have to be shaken by all the ridiculous things that are said about what happened to Jesus' body. Jesus is alive. He did what no man could do. He defeated sin. He defeated death. Peter and John being those two first males on the site, they fulfilled the Jewish law of two witnesses. They would have upheld in court that there was no body in this tomb. There are those two witnesses. But our resurrected Redeemer would go on to appear to many others in his resurrected state. Lord willing, we'll discuss more next week. But our resurrected Redeemer would appear to more than 500 people. 500. Many of those people would die for their faith. Many would die. Even Jesus' own brother who had denied that Jesus was the Christ before the resurrection would become fully devoted follower after the resurrection. What had he seen? Jesus is alive. Jesus has come back from the grave. Jesus in that tomb leaves behind the linen cloths, the head cloth. Now, if you remember, remember when Jesus told Lazarus, come forward? After Lazarus comes out, he tells the people, unbind him. Apparently, it's something you don't do yourself. Jesus left that all in the tomb. In his resurrected body, he came out. All that was left behind. Face cloth folded up, set in place. It's done. It's finished. And all these witnesses would see this risen Jesus. How could they deny witnessing such a miracle? Look, all the miracles he did, people saw them, feeding the thousands. And what did they do? They came back. Why? Because they wanted more food. He's the meal maker. But now the one who comes back from the dead, how do you deny such a thing? Not even the threat of death would cause them to recant what they have seen. They have seen the resurrected Redeemer. They would stand for the truth even if it cost them their life. You know, it might prove to be an impossible feat to find somebody who would die for a lie. But eyewitness after eyewitness could not help but testify, this is the truth. I'm not recanting. I'm not saying anything else. Jesus is alive. And you go, Pastor, I know this already. I believe this. You need to be encouraged by it. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to stand firm that Jesus is alive, that that tomb is empty, that our future glory has been purchased. It's done. 
Nothing could make these witnesses shake from what they've seen. Nothing could make them go one way or another. No threat would cause them to back down because they had witnessed the risen Savior. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. I'm going to sit and I'm going to pause on that for a second. Because as Christians, many of us being believers for so long, that's just foundational. We know that. Tell me something new. What better news do you need to know? That you don't have some wishful thinking, but Jesus is alive. That he did exactly what he said he would do. That you have full assurance of everything that he spoke of. He did the most impossible piece of it when he said, I will come back after three days. Nobody had witnessed that before. And because he did that, everything else that he has said is validated. We can trust in his word. Forgiveness is available through him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Do you know there are many people who say there are many roads to heaven? And they would say, if you're a Buddhist, just be the best Buddhist you can be. If you're uh, you know, a Muslim, be the best Muslim you can be. And I'm a Christian, so I'll be the best Christian I can be because in the end, we all get to the same place. If you believe that, then Jesus is a liar. Because Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life. And that nobody gets to the Father except through him. It's not about being good. It's about what he did upon that cross, saying it is finished, and then rising from the dead to validate every claim. And because he's been raised from the dead, you have hope today, and I have hope today. We have a resurrected Redeemer. He lives. In John chapter 11, Jesus said this. John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He said, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He said, do you believe this? Who is he teaching? I am the resurrection and the life. Believe in me, and though you die, still you will live. Jesus died upon that cross. He came back three days later, and forevermore he lives. And he reigns. He says, do you believe this? You know, I tell you every week, I don't care how many Sundays you've attended church as far as your consistency. I don't, I don't care how many times you, you've been in prayer or in the Bible and you say, Pastor, look how much time I've spent. If you do not know Jesus, it does not matter. We are not graded on a curve when we get to heaven to see how many times you've been in church, how many hours you've been in prayer, or how many hours you've been in your Bible. Although I would contend, those are all good disciplines to have. But they don't make you a Christian. You might have a little pass on your keychain that says you go to a gym. That does not make you a bodybuilder because you have that little pass on your keychain. Walking to a church doesn't make you a Christian any more than walking into a garage makes you a car. You must know Christ, and he must know you, and he bids you to come to him, 
to repent, to turn, and to receive him. Look, it's easy, and it would be foolish not to receive him as Savior. Look, someone who died on my behalf. He says you must come to him as Savior and Lord. And he must be the Lord of our lives. That means he is the master. He is the one who says, jump, and guess what I do? Jump. He's the one that says, move, and I move. Because he is Lord. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and he says, repent. Turn from living life your way and turn to living life his way. Jesus is alive. We have a living hope. If you have been a faithful churchgoer, you have been a faithful person going through even disciplines of Christianity, but you have not come to Christ, he bids you today, come to him. Receive him. Submit to him. Turn to him. Come to him now. He is the one who defeated sin and death. He is the one that rose from that grave. Put a stamp of victory on our eternity. Today, would you receive him as Lord and Savior? You know, the Bible doesn't say there's a magic formula. There are many churches that say, raise your hand or walk to the front, repeat a prayer. That's not in the Bible anywhere. What we see is repent and believe. That's between you and God. And when you do that, the Bible says, then come and be baptized. Believer's baptism, as Brother Phil shared earlier, as a believer, one who has repented and trusted in Christ, now as a public display to all who will see that you have been saved by our resurrected Redeemer. My prayer is that would be you today. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in something that is not new for many of us. That the tomb was empty. Yet, God, I have prayed that you would make newness in this reality. That for those of us who have trusted, we have repented and put our hope in Christ, once again, we would be encouraged to know that we have a living hope, a living Savior, that it's not wishful thinking, that when someone asks us about eternity, we, can, we don't have to say, well, I hope I go to heaven, but we know it's all dependent on what Christ has done for us. And Father, I know that in our church, we have people who would come every week, Sunday after Sunday, week after week, month after month, year after year, and never bow a knee to Christ. Father, I pray if there's anyone in this place this morning that you would draw them in submission to our resurrected Redeemer. They would cry out in submission. And God, they would rejoice in the hope and the victory they have in Christ. We pray these things in the glorious name of Jesus.